0: In cancer, the rigorous translational machinery of the human body goes haywire, causing an overproduction of proteins that fuel the growth and spread of tumors, as well as enabling them to evade the immune system. Effector Therapeutics is developing a new class of cancer therapies called Selective Translation Regulator Inhibitors, or STRIs, that can inhibit the production of proteins that drive a cancer. We spoke to Steve Warlin, president and CEO of Effector, about the company's new class of therapies, how they target a central node where two major cancer signaling pathways converge, and how they pack the punch of a combination therapy in a single drug. Steve, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, Danny, I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: We're going to talk about cancer effector therapeutics and its efforts to develop a new class of therapies designed to inhibit the expression of proteins that drive the growth and spread of cancer. Before we do that, though, I wanted to start with you. Prior to your current position, you were CEO of Anadis, a company developing therapies for hepatitis C, and you also headed antiviral research at Pfizer before that. Treating cancer has increasingly focused on its interactions with the immune system. I'm wondering about how you found yourself heading a cancer company and how your history as a virologist informs what you're doing today.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Danny. So I think first, for the record, I should uh, correct in, in behalf of everyone who's a real virologist. Uh, I'm not a virologist, although I spent many years developing antiviral drugs, but i um, there's a whole set of skills that virologists have that I don't have. Um, but with that said, um, the I think the real similarity was um, we've had these two waves, even before um, COVID, we had two waves of antiviral development. First, HIV in the 90s, and then hepatitis C in sort of the um, late 90s and 2000s. Um, and these molecular details of the diseases are quite different. But there's one thing that we learned very important in the virals that I thought would be applicable in, in cancer treatment. And that was really to understand the complexity of the disease and particularly to, to understand how certain diseases respond to therapy and anticipate what that response would be and then build that in. So I like to draw an analogy of you're playing chess with the disease. If I move here, I mean, I use drug A, the virus is gonna mutate this way. If I then use drug B, this is what will happen. If I use drug A and B together, maybe I'll do better. That kind of thinking about anticipating, the disease isn't static, it's very dynamic, and viruses grow very quickly and then mutate very quickly. Um, So how will the disease respond when I treat it with therapy? And let me bake that in ahead of time in my thinking. That was what I brought over to the cancer world, and I was by no means the first person to think of this or the only person um, but the idea that um, cancer is very complex, it's genetically way more complex than a virus disease is. And it's also very dynamic. That's one of the things we learned is that cancer mutates all the time too, just like you know, not as fast as a virus, but similar thing. Cancer is not gonna sit there and take the therapy lying down. It's gonna fight back. It's gonna change and try to escape the treatment. And so it was that thinking about how do we think about the playing field? How do we think about Boxing the disease into a corner, it was that thinking in the antiviral world that when I came back to wanting to work exclusively in cancer, it was that kind of thinking that um, formed the basis for a starting a factor.
0: The response to that problem, both in the antiviral world and the world of cancer, has been to use combination therapies. In the realm of cancer, how successful has that strategy been?
1: Yeah, I would say we've had success, um, but, and we being the uh, community broadly, um, but there's still a lot of room to go. And so, um, most cancer therapy is used in combination. Um, there are some exceptions for what we call targeted therapy, where sometimes there's a single gene that is so dominant in driving that cancer, you could, all you have to do is inhibit that gene product and you'll do very well. You know, a great example is the first targeted therapy, maybe a drug called Gleevec, targets a protein called BCR-ABL. That was so dominant in that particular disease type that that's effective therapy. Unfortunately, that's the exception. Most uh, cancer is more complex than that. And so people are doing combinations. Um, The original combinations were a little bit um, sort of seat of our pants. We have an active drug, we have another active drug, maybe they'll work better together. But about the time we um, started effector people started to think about very rational combinations which is what which is what led to all the advances in hiv and then hepatitis c was not just put two active drugs together but really think hard about which combination you're doing um, and so i would say we're we're starting to make progress um, we're uh, starting to invoke the immune system as well um, but there's still A lot of complex cancers that where we don't quite know the the trick yet, which two drugs to combine together, or we might not have the right drug for one of the two. We like to talk about vulnerabilities in a cancer where you could hit it and and cause it some pain. Um, We don't know the right vulnerability yet for some cancers. So I think the concept is is showing promise, but there's still a lot of uh, room to go before we can really effectively treat most cancers.
0: Effector is developing a new class of cancer medicines called Selective Translation Regulator Inhibitors, or STRIs. What are these, and and how do they work?
1: Yeah, so these drugs are designed to uh, block production of some key proteins that are important for cancer. So I mentioned cancer is very uh, complex. And so for a cancer cell to grow and become a tumor and avoid your immune system, they need to make some specific proteins that would normally be in in healthy cells as well, but the cancer cells make more of them and they make a particular set of proteins or a particular repertoire of proteins. So what the STRIs do is they work right at that production mechanism for protein and they selectively go in and knock down the proteins that the cancer particularly needs. Well, because they're selective, they leave most of the proteins in a cell untouched. How do these
0: differ from tyrosine kinase inhibitors and how targeted are they? Would you profile a patient's tumor to determine the appropriateness of a given
1: STRI? Yeah, it's a great question, Danny. And so I think um, compared to a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, that's kind of blocking the signals that go towards the tumor cell and say, do all the things that make you a tumor cell, copy your DNA, make protein, get ready to divide the cell, avoid the immune system. Um, and so, um, while they can, um, block that signaling broadly, there's also lots of escape mechanisms that, you know, tyrosine kinase inhibitors usually have, uh, select for mutations that, um, you know, after which the disease progresses. Um, so, uh, what the SDRIs do is, is sort of go what we call downstream. They go down to where the actual action is at the protein production plant and say, let's not make these specific proteins, let's block the tumor from making these specific proteins. Um, And and so it's a little bit of a different approach to um, deny the cancer which proteins it needs in order to be a tumor.
0: How universal are the targets of STRIs from cancer to cancer? Are they unique to each type of cancer or are there common targets that extend across different cancers?
1: Yeah, so I think in general, uh, we think about it as there are common targets that extend across multiple cancers, uh, not all necessarily, but multiple. And let me give you two examples. So um, our, our two lead programs, one of them is called Certive, or we call that Tommy for short. Um, Tommy activates T-cells, and so it makes T-cells, and T-cells are part of our immune system. They're inherently how we fight off infections and how we um, eliminate um, diseased cells, uh, cancer is very clever, and, 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 it, and it sort of um, tunes down the immune system. It, it, it evades the immune system in part by uh, t- you know, by basically driving the immune cell into a less active state. So what Tommy can do is reverse that process, reactivate T-cells, and, um, and make the T-cells then go look for tumor cells and, and eliminate the T-cells. Um, So that's using the body's own mechanism in order to go after the cancer, which is one of the main thrusts of cancer therapy today. Uh, So to your question about would that work everywhere, it wouldn't work everywhere, but there are many different tumors that we now know are are responsive to immune activation. And so lung cancer is a great example. Um, Melanoma is another example, kidney cancer. Um, There are some others where it doesn't work as well. But um, it, you know, our understanding for Tommy would be that anywhere where that tumor or that cancer is sensitive to the immune activation, Tommy has a good chance of working. And then some tumors just have other ways of even an activated immune system can attack that tumor. And so Tommy might not work there. And then for the second drug, Zotatathin, it works inside cancer cells. And the particular proteins we knock down are very important for particular tumor types. Like ER positive breast cancer, uh, and again, lung cancer. So, to summarize, it's not all tumors, but it would be a good set of tumors for either Tommy or, or Zoda. is the second
0: You're looking at Tommy in combination with immunotherapies. What happens when you combine Tommy with an immunotherapy?
1: Yeah, and so um, let me give a little bit of background there first. So when uh, um, immunotherapy is used in lung cancer, where we're starting the study here, um, you see a portion of the patients respond. Some of them don't respond. And by respond means their tumor shrinks and they feel good. Um, but over time, those tumors start to um, grow back again. And what's pretty clear is um, in most of those patients, the tumor grows back because the tumor learns a way to um, to downregulate the immune system, to sort of shut the immune system back off again. Um, And so when we bring in Tommy, which can reactivate the immune system, it's very well matched with the mechanisms that the tumor is using to try to shut off the tumor system. So that's kind of the tumor's escape path, so we can shut off the escape path. Um, And so what we've done in a clinical trial where we've published at a annual meeting called ASCO, um, we took patients who are actually progressing on their immunotherapy on either pembrolizumab or nivolumab, and even after they were progressing, we added our drug calmly. and what we saw was that in many of those patients, we could stabilize the disease and stop it from continuing to grow, and we looked how long that could last, um, and that was um, stood out compared to what you might have expected from historical data. Um, so the real idea here is to um, use Tommy to prevent the tumor from escaping from other immune therapy. Um, And we're in a randomized trial right now. And so we'll have to wait till that trial reads out to know how it's working. But we're very optimistic based on the uh, phase 2A data that we've already presented.
0: What do you know about it from studies that have been done to date?
1: Yeah, so we know that um, in a particular group of patients that are known to be immunoresponsive, we took a set of patients who were progressing on uh, their immunotherapy added Tommy, and those patients got another year on average without progression. So, you know, that's pretty significant in a setting where people's disease are progressing and now um, their next choice is really just a pretty toxic, hard-to-take chemotherapy regimen that won't work very long anyway. To be able to give somebody another year of their life back on average is pretty significant. Um, So that's what we did in what we call a phase 2A study. The, um, the first study that led into our randomized phase 2B study. So we're pretty optimistic uh, based on that data, a whole year on average extension beyond when the patients were starting to progress on their checkpoint therapy. Um, and now of course we have to um, you know test that again and hope to demonstrate that in this larger randomized study. You also mentioned Zotatafin, which
0: is a, another STRI that you have in development. What is Zototaphin and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so uh, Zototaphin, and we call that one Zota for short. So our drugs we call Tommy and Zota, they're easier to say. So um, Zota works um, inside the tumor cell and it blocks um, primarily production of the proteins that um, allow a cell to divide. So in in normal biology, cells um, have a cycle they go through and they don't just, you know, wake up one morning and say, hey, let's divide and become two cells it's a very programmed set of activities that have to follow in a sequence. And that sequence is called the cell cycle. And because when a cell divides, that's a very important event, it can be very healthy or it can be dangerous like cancer. It's a very tightly regulated process. And so there are proteins that control advancing through this cell cycle to ultimately divide the uh, cell. And so what Zoda does is it blocks Production of those proteins that are required to advance through the cell cycle. Um, and what we've learned is that that's um, a very important aspect of cancer. It gets hypercharged in cancer, and particularly cancers like um, a set of breast cancers we call ER positive, meaning estrogen driven. Um, breast cancers are very dependent on this cell cycle and um, people have previously, previously shown other ways of going after uh, uh, the cell cycle work in breast cancer. So that's one of the main focuses for Zotatofin now is to use these properties of blocking cell cycle uh, protein production to, uh, to treat breast cancer.
0: This is in development for solid tumors. Have you narrowed down the indications you're pursuing at all, and how are you going about determining those indications?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I should point out that we're really the leaders in the STRI field. So every drug we're taking into the clinic, we're plowing new ground ourselves. So no one's ever taken a mechanism like Zoda into the clinic before. So what you usually do is you have some idea from your from your preclinical studies and you in, enroll a fairly broad set of, of uh, patients and then you start asking, you know, what's happening in the clinic. And so what we've seen um, is uh, we've seen two responses so far. we reported this at the ASCO meeting in June. Um, we've seen two partial responses, meaning tumors have shrunk beyond an objective threshold um, in these uh, patients with estrogen-dependent uh, breast cancer. So the way you figure this out is to kind of take your preclinical data, use that to shape where you start in the clinic, and that's kind of a bootstrapping thing. The more you learn in the clinic, the more you hone in on a particular tumor types. And so right now we're very focused on ER-positive breast cancer um, and are very excited about the first two responses we saw. Um, and I, I'm particularly excited because it matches very well with the preclinical biology. And, and that's, a, that's an important confidence builder. If what you understood about the drug before you went in the clinic matches what you're seeing in the clinic, that's usually a suggestion that that, that clinical data is much more likely to hold up over time. You know, if it's completely different than you saw preclinically, that might be interesting, but you probably have more work to do. So we're very excited that the clinical data as it's starting to emerge fits very well in our picture of uh, how this, uh, you know, drug we might expect it to work and fits very well in the picture of the overall STRI platform. So again, it's the first company to take a class of the Zota mechanism into the clinic. I think that's very exciting and very rewarding to actually see patients benefiting even this early on in the program. What's the development path forward? So I think we'll continue to do some of this, um, you know, early exploratory phase two work here, but as data continues to come in, we hope that it will confirm this uh, initial signal of activity in ER ER-positive breast cancer and then we would move to what's called a randomized trial where we would compare our drug to a different treatment and, um, and then really demonstrate in a very rigorous, randomized way that we're providing more benefit than the other, what we call a control arm. Um, and that would that data in hand, then we'd go to the FDA and propose a, a registration trial, meaning we wanna run one more trial and get this drug approved to go on the market. A
0: factor went public through a SPAC deal in 2021 why did you decide to go that route rather than a conventional IPO?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And when we first started looking at it, I asked myself, why, why does this other avenue, or this other product exist in the market? As I educated myself and had, had people um, help me and, and teach me, what became clear was that um, if you go down a spec route, at some point you have what we call in the business world deal certainty. You can say at a point in time, five or six months before the SPAC closes, there's a very high likelihood that this transaction is going to close. And so you get through all the risk early on. In an IPO process, I've done an IPO previously as well, about 15 years ago or so. You don't really know until two or three weeks before you have a pretty good sense and you don't know for sure until it actually, you price it the the, uh, day of the IPO. Um, So in about 18 months ago or so or now, it, it appeared, it looked to us at the time that there was much better deal certainty. We'll know that we'll be public. We'll know that we'll get the capital that we need to continue to develop our products. Um, and yes, you know, perhaps we can do an IPO. I think we could have, but there was higher risk around the chance of, of closing an IPO relative to doing this back. And so that's really the, the di- differentiating factor for us was this deal certainty. How far will existing
0: cash take you and are there plans to raise additional capital?
1: Yeah, so the existing cash that we have will take us through the trials that we're talking about. So we have this randomized trial with camellocertib and pembrolizumab um, and and that data we expect to read out in the first half of next year. And we have the Zoda trials that I talked about, um, particularly focusing near positive breast cancer. And so the cash that we have on hand now is enough to run those trials and get that data. Um, We haven't commented, and we usually don't, specifically about plans to raise capital. But like all biotech companies, it's a very capital-intensive business. So um, at some point, certainly, we'll want to raise more capital to finish developing the products. Um, But the cash we have on hand right now is sufficient to read out the data events from the trials we're doing.
0: It's been a tough time for public biotechs. Effector is near a 52-week low. What's the discussion been like with investors and how has being a public company made your job tougher?
1: Yeah, and so I think um, you're right that the market right now is a very risk averse. And so there's kind of a risk on appetite, risk off. We're very much in a risk off appetite right now. Um, and I think you know our investors and, and other investors that we talk about kind of understand that. And you know people who've been in the business a long time know these cycles come and go. Um, you know, I, I've lived through several of these cycles before, and they do eventually go away. So what you have to have is enough capital to get to your data events, and, and investors um, respect that. So I think everybody is kind of um, feeling the pain of the current market for sure, a little bit of commiseration, I think, but also uh, focus on companies like a factor who are going to be able to read out their kind of data events. Um, and then... I mean, in terms of tougher or not, they you know being private and public, they each have their challenges. Um, I think for the stage of our company, it, it's um, I'm actually glad we're public, even though this is a very tough market to be in, and um, you know wouldn't uh, wish on, on on anybody to enter the public markets right before the kind of downturn we've had this year. But I still think for you know sort of clinical stage of development uh, uh, in biotech and pharmaceuticals. The investors who typically participate in the public markets are very knowledgeable about drug development. They're very knowledgeable about what kind of trials will read, um, read out um, useful data and um, really think kind of about, about new products and how they'd ultimately go onto the market and be used. And so I do think it's appropriate at our stage of our company to be speaking with that kind of type of investors. And you know this, like everything else, shall pass. At some point, we'll be in better market times, and, and everyone who's been through these cycles knows that that is the case. Steve Warlin, President and CEO
0: of Effector Therapeutics. Steve, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Danny, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group.